Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, as promised, I'm excited. This week we are talking to the fantastic singer-songwriter Bonnie Hayes. You may remember last week I mentioned this. We had her brother Chris Hayes on. He was the guitarist for Huey Lewis and the News. Well, this week we get to hear from Bonnie, and her career has gone all over the map. Now, 40 years ago or so, she was fronting her band, The Wild Combo, out of the Bay Area. And they were this fantastic new wave band. Very cutting edge, very of its time. There were two of their songs that were featured heavily in the movie Valley Girl. This song right here, Girls Like Me, and then Shelly's Boyfriend. You may remember these songs. They were so fantastic. Unfortunately, the wild combo never really got off the ground. Eventually, a few years later, she puts out a solo album, self-titled, and it's not very good. And she knows it, and we talk about it in here. It's not very good. Um, But what's really interesting is that despite these stumbling blocks, some songs that she wrote ended up in the hands of Bonnie Raitt. And they were chosen and played on her album, Nick of Time, that huge comeback album. And some of these were hits, Have a Heart, uh, Love Letter. She wrote these songs. So her life goes in a completely different direction after this. Bonnie Raitt, another one of my absolute favorites. So after this, she becomes more of like a, you know, a singer-songwriter type. And she works with people like Adam Ant, of all people. David Crosby records one of her songs. She puts out a couple more solo albums that are all sort of in that more rustic Americana rock vibe. Well, this goes on for a while, too. Uh, Along the way, she plays keyboards in the touring band for both Belinda Carlisle and Billy Idol. We talk about both of those in here as well. These days, she teaches songwriting at the Berklee School of Music in Boston. And so this woman has done so many cool things. And she you'll see, she is so outspoken in here. She just tells it like it is. I love it. If you don't come away with a little bit of a crush on Bonnie and a ton of respect for everything she's achieved in her life, you're nuts. Okay? I love this conversation. I am so grateful. I've been wanting to have her on for years. She called me from her home in Boston. So, Bonnie, like I said, I've, I've had kind of a curiosity about you for years. I uh, discovered you about the time that I kind of discovered the Valley Girl soundtrack. And in my mind, I don't I don't know if this is what you hear from most people, but that's sort of that's where I know Bonnie Hayes. When I think of Bonnie Hayes, I think of the Valley Girl soundtrack first and foremost. And I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole and I listened to all your other solo albums and stuff like that. So we're going to talk about that. Okay. But I'm curious if. It wasn't until getting ready to talk to you that I realized that you're not actually on the Valley Girl soundtrack. Correct. <laughs> you're on the sequel that came out in the 90s. Yes. And that's just one of the many issues uh, with us signing with Slash Records. So, right. yeah. Um, I believe, I don't really actually have the straight dope on this because nobody would ever talk to me or explain anything to me but um pretty sure that what happened is one of the that the cfo of slash wouldn't accept the licensing you know the uh, the agreement to include it on the on the um soundtrack and so they left it off there's a lot of crazy people in the music industry (laughs) (laughs) yes and a lot of people who are in it for love and don't really have the money and that time. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like 
a combination of inexperienced business people and also just sort of the guy that I'm thinking of was kind of an argumentative, contentious kind of person. And it wasn't Bob. So, I mean, just to back up a little bit, you know, I had released, I mean, basically what happened was I was having trouble getting anybody to pay any attention to our music. And we, I released a single of Shelly's Boyfriend. side was this song called Rochambeau, mm. cult favorite. And that started to get played. We took it around, you know, in our car and dropped it off at the local college stations. Um, our friend Dal Taco started playing it at KUSF. And then we slowly got more and more college stations and they, everybody just flipped out over the record. And so, um, you know, we were really drawing well and the, the record was being played all over the country. Mm-hmm. And so that was when we were approached by Slash Records and Slash Records was Bob Biggs, who I'm, I don't really know where his money came from. I don't, I don't, I think he might've been like a little bit of a trust fund guy, mm-hmm. but, um, real music lover. They, and they had, you know, a bunch of great LA punk bands on that label. And I think what they thought was that we were going to kind of be their pop, mm. their pop hit. Yeah. Um, in, you know, so they, they signed us, um, and Mark's partner, uh, uh, Bob's partner was this guy, Mark Trilling. And Mark, uh, Bob was married to um, Penelope Spiris. Oh, who, sure. Who was very good friends with Martha Coolidge. Yes. Who made good, clean fun. So That makes sense. I've wondered how that connection happened. Okay. Yeah. So that's kind of, I mean, that's like really a classic music industry story, too, of yeah. like, you kind of have to do it yourself at the beginning. Nobody's going to come and get you and it's just because you're talented. You have to build something. So we went out there and got something going, and then we got signed, and we definitely did not know what we were getting into, and neither did they. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, Martha put it in the, in the movie, and it did definitely contribute to our reputation and to our ability to draw in on tour but then they were constantly just stepping in it in terms of negotiating they also we didn't get uh we didn't get our distribution through warners um warners picked up slash and slash for some reason was completely unable to negotiate 
the, our record to be distributed. So we were sidelined to, to indie distribution. Mm. It was a very, my first real skirmish with uh, record companies. And, you know, it was pretty, yeah. pretty awful, gotta say. Yeah. Your hopes and dreams in your mind as a young up and coming musician have to be sort of coming true. You're thinking, we've got an album out, we're going on this movie. This is going to be the big break, but then all this legal and internal political stuff is happening in the background. Are you able to enjoy what, like any success you're seeing, or is it all clouded by this experience? No, we had. I mean, it, we. I loved my band, and I loved playing. We we were you know really popular in San Francisco and the whole Bay Area, and really had a great time mm -hmm. playing gigs we played all the like street fairs you know the the we were you know a lot of gay people really mm -hmm. liked us we were just i don't know it was just really really fun yeah. we partied our heads off <laughs> la was just one of those places that it never got us at least at that time it never got mm. never got the band we were considered kind of sellouts because we had because i was really into writing pop melodies mm. Um, which ended up working very much in my favor. Yeah. But but the other acts on the label just thought we were like rich kids sellouts. And, really? Uh, well, you know, you know, L.A. Huh. Hard, yeah. It was like Fear and X and the Blasters, and it was all this sort of. I mean, honestly, to be honest with you, I don't. I don't really know if they have a leg to stand on with that. But that was definitely the. Yeah. the the vibe that we got, which was like, huh. oh, you guys are going to be the big pop hope, you know, because you're because you, you know, you're not hardcore like we. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Uh, so it did, um, and I don't know who was really kind of hitting it before or the other. I'm a, I, it's, I think Chris and his association with Huey Lewis. I think they were starting to get some groundswell of interest and some popularity slightly before this. So you were opening for them a lot, right? But Well, that was actually way later. Oh, um, was it? Oh, at okay. At the time, we were headlining all the clubs in San Francisco. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, and they were headlining. I mean, we were sort of, for a while, as they were coming up, we were kind of around the same amount. But um, they had, I mean, they were a pop band, you know, mm -hmm. and they didn't, you know, fall. We were sort of signed to a punk label, but we were not a punk band. And I think that was a real mistake in retrospect, you know. Mm. Um, That's too big because Slash has a, I mean, for people who like punk, Slash is kind of a legendary label. That's a, that would, it'd be like, uh, being a um, uh, rough uh, rough trade, it'd be like being signed to Rough Trade or one of these other sort of you know very reputable punk homegrown labels. Like still... Sub Pop in the nineties. Yes, yes, exactly. It, had, it definitely had that cachet, right? But unfortunately, you know, we were a Bay Area band. Nobody in the Bay Area cared about Slash, I guess, and nobody in LA cared about us, and we yeah. always had trouble having an impact in LA. We, we tried to get signed before we signed with Slash. We were, uh, David Anderley at A&M was talking. We, I signed a pub deal oh. uh, a, a year and a half before I signed with Slash because they knew something was going to happen, but yeah. nobody was willing to take the chance on us as a label act huh. um, because 
and and we had a really strong live show. It was a great band. Um, but I just, I don't know. I think I was just a little too weird for them. <laughs> yeah. Well, like smart girls. Okay. Like it's definitely <laughs> not like I was a smart Alec and a sassy, sassy girl. And yeah. I just, you know, I don't think I endeared myself to. It's a power play, I guess. These guys want to feel like they're in charge. They don't want to be threatened or challenged. They want to, they, their big thing with women at that time was, well, if I don't want to uh-huh. fucker, <laughs> right. you know, and, and what makes, I, you know, that, that weird calculation of who's fuckable. Well, you yeah. know, you have a big mouth, you know, you're less fuckable, I guess. Did you, I mean, you don't have to get into it if you don't want to. Did you face any of that? You're a beautiful lady. You were beautiful then and now. So, I mean, I would imagine that probably came up maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It did. Really? Yeah. Oh man. I won't go any farther. That's for that's far enough right there. Okay. Well, <laughs> when you were were they were you at least going out on tour with uh, you know, were you able to play with I don't know, Elvis Costello or the Go-Go's or Nick Lowe or anybody? No. And um we had we were then we signed to Monterey Peninsula artists who were a, a North Bay uh agency and they really didn't really know what to do with us either. It was like we we didn't fit in that in that new wave punk scene, yeah. and we didn't fit in the straight down the middle pop thing. More like Huey Lewis, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we we kind of were in between. Sorry about that siren. It happens. No big deal. That's so interesting to me because when I especially when I listen to Good Clean Fun. It sounds like exactly what that convergence of new wave and power pop was doing at the time. It sounds like the cars. It sounds like Devo. It's sa- in fact, it's less challenging even than some of those bands were. Yeah. I would think it's radio ready. I'm so surprised that anyone thought for a minute they didn't know what to do with this thing because it's well, obvious. It, was, it even was on the radio. It was on it was on all the college radio stations, which was basically the way that you broke out at that yeah. point. And because you know commercial radio was still playing you know, like kind of stadium music that was super overproduced and yeah. kind of, you know, 70s hangover yeah. rock. So I don't know. I don't know what that was. I mean, I, I don't know if it was, you know, we, we were, uh, I think we should have made it, but we didn't. And I think yeah. that happens a lot, you know, yeah. it's like everything, everything looks like it's in place. It feels like it should be working. It was working on a local level. We were ex- extraordinary. I supported the band, a manager, two roadies. We had a truck. We had, we, you know, and everybody made a living. Right. Mm -hmm. With that band. So we were not scraping, you know, so, Uh, but um, going on tour, it was just, we just never got asked to go on any of those tours. Slash didn't advocate for us. They didn't go out and try to put us with their other people who were touring. Yeah. I mean, this is what I mean. I think it was really, it's got to be on Slash, you know? Yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. You, um, you know, one of the hallmarks, I think, of your career is the diversity. Um, you know, you, we're here talking about this perfect new wave power pop album from the early 80s. But your your songwriting and your chops and the people you would collaborate with, they extend to all these other spectrums. And I wonder if if that sort of 
restlessness or maybe even because Brave New Girl is a is a big step up. It's not the you know skinny tie type album that Good Clean Fun was. And I wonder if that's you thinking, well, if you didn't like the first one or that wasn't good enough for you, let's try something different. Is that what you were thinking there? No, I was okay. just following my, I, I was, you know, I'm not, I wasn't super market driven at the time. I mean, Good Clean Fun was this explosion of creativity that happened when I, st when I realized I could marry this wild frenetic energy uh, and loud guitars with beautiful pop melodies and harmonies, you know, and sneak these jazzy chords in there. And that's why the people that like that record were more, a little bit more sophisticated musically. Mm -hmm. And I think partly why there was suspicion of us on the, in the straight punk, which is a lot of those people weren't really players, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, me and, and Kevin and Paul in the, in the, in the wild combo and Hank for that matter, we were all pretty, you know, we, musically we had all played a lot of different kinds of music already. We played, a, I mean, I played a ton of jazz. I wanted to be a jazz player. Mm -hmm. I moved to New York mm. you know, to try to be a, a wow. jazz piano player and, um, and got a touring rock and roll gig. Right. So, <laughs> That was the first thing that happened. And then I was playing rock and roll, which I thought was stupid at the time. And then I realized it was kind of awesome. Uh -huh. And we were out, <laughs> was out with this band opening for Bob Seger, you know, and kind of watching Bob Seger and just going, well, that guy writes his own songs. He, he, he does exactly what he wants. Like, yeah. and you, you know, jazz, there's just not, I mean, you can do exactly what you want, but it's a rare player who can make a living, you know, playing uh -huh. us, right? So yeah, I just, you know, I, I basically started trying to write these pop songs, but it wasn't like I didn't want to be a star or anything. Mm. I just like, ex I was exploring my musical, uh, you know, I was basically learning as I wrote and Brave New Girl was just the next step. Okay. In that, that, you know, kind of, it was, a, it's more sophisticated and more complex lyrically, but, and form wise, but it, mm -hmm. it I felt like it was kind of in line. You know? Okay. Kind of a natural It was 1984, right? True. So, True. We, you know, <laughs> right. it was different. Uh, it's uh, I really like Incommunicado. Um, oh, yeah. 
I was just texting with my friend Benny Rietfeld, who played with me later, but he um, he's a bass player, plays with Carlos Santana, and mm. he, he was naming off the songs on that record, saying how much he loves those songs. So yeah, you know. yeah, it's a good one. Okay, well then we have to finally in I believe it's '87 your major label debut comes out, and from everything I've heard, it was a little bit of a debacle. I mean, I don't hear, uh, I'll save my comments till after I hear what you think of the Bonnie Hayes album. What are your feelings about that? I hate that record so much. And you can (laughs) see, I've tried, I basically do not work that record. Um, It's just, and, and it was this, so basically what happened was now we kept, there were these articles that were appearing in the paper, like, why isn't Bonnie Hayes a star? Uh And, And so I was getting all of this stuff of like, you're failure to write hit you know hit songs like you need to try harder basically was what it was to be what everybody wants you to be and i can tell anybody who's out there listening to this don't do that uh-huh. you know your best bet is to be as far outside as you can you know it, either the culture will come around to you or it won't but i just really you know i had to i felt like i had to do it because First of all, Bob Brown, who was Huey Lewis's manager, kept saying to me, you know, you're really talented. You should be making it. Why aren't you making it? Um, thought I was a great songwriter, signed me as to management and got me signed to Chrysalis. And Chrysalis, again, had no clue, no clue what to do with me. Like it was and I had I, I'm not going to say his name, but my a&R guy is famous in the music industry for being a complete like coke-addled lunatic. Oh no. And um and the guy after we signed, they got a new president and the old president left. It was just like one of those things where like thing after thing after thing just went the wrong way again. So I mean, you know, I got to take some of this on myself, but I was just doing what, you know, I was sure. just trying- I was just trying to do what I needed to do. Yeah. Um, to well, have these guys it. are supposed to experts and they're, yeah. you know, <laughs> trying to guide your career. Oh, this has worked for, you know, whoever, and this is going to work for you. And I kind of hate that album too, Bonnie. I hate to say it. I, I cause I love it. you. And, I, I, th- I don't think there's one song on there that I care about, you huh. know? And, um, I, they were all, it was like sort of dumbing it down. And then we made it with Stuart Levine, who had done the Simply Red records. Uh-huh. Um, and dude, they spent, he hired all these studio cats uh-huh. and Jerry Hay and, you know, these people to do string and horn arrangement. I mean, it was very, to me, it just seemed very overproduced and yeah. super cheesy and... Um, I hated, I went in, they were like, they got a stylist and the stylist Mm -hmm. did that cover. And I was just like, oh my God, like, (laughs) you know, I don't know. Anyway, it was, it's, it's a great story of, you know, what happens when you do what other, you know, kind of less Uh, imaginative people think you should do to get over, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I uh, as I said, when I sort of discovered you, I don't know when it was, probably 10 years ago or so, and I'm getting my hands on all your albums. I remember 
loading that onto my iPod and I hadn't heard it yet. And I was going on a plane and I was so excited to, I was going to just have it. It was going to be an all Bonnie Hayes flight. I was going to listen to nothing but Bonnie Hayes on my trip. And this album comes on and some guys is, is pretty good. And I'm like, okay, this is, she looks a little bit like Debbie Gibson on the cover. That doesn't jive with what I think of when I think of Bonnie Hayes. And But she looks great, you know, her belly's hanging out and she looks beautiful and okay. But it, then it just stays in this odd, total 80s production in a bad way kind of vein. And it just, and it just was so disheartening. I'm sorry. I, I hope I can it be honest so with you. It was so disheartening to us. Like we, I mean, it was super stressful. There was so much stress around that. And um uh, it was just, it was really a hard experience from the beginning to the end. Again, we went to L.A. and got sucked into the belly of the beast and got chewed up and spit out. Yeah. And, um, you know, just really trying to figure out how I could fit in to the music industry, you know. And I <laughs> just never did, you know. Uh, I never so did. Weird. Yeah, it's really, it was really weird. I mean, Some Guys was the first song I wrote for that record. I wrote it before I was signed. And in fact, it was on hold with Cher mm. for three years. And um, I had to pull it. I got signed to Chrysalis in the meantime. And they wanted me to, to have that song for my single. And I had to pull it from the Cher record. It was on hold for Cher. Oh, and John Kolodner called me and told, called me a stupid C-U-N-T. And he was right because I shouldn't have pulled it because the share, I mean, she ended up using it on, as the B side of, of okay. the if I Could Turn Back Time single. That and was the B that side? Alone, that alone made me a hundred thousand, you know, I don't even know yeah. how it made me. So um, it definitely earned out my, my publishing deal. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it was just, it it was. One of those things where, again, I just, I don't feel like I got good advice. And also, uh, I just am too much of a weirdo. I just don't belong. <laughs> at, at that time, the music industry, again, had gone to the lowest common, common denominator, weakest, yes. simpy, you know, kind of pathetic imitation of real music. And that was where I was, you know, that yeah. I mean, and it was really, it was really hard. It's too bad you're better than that. But two years later, you would have like a major, major victory lap. And because two of your songs and two of the better songs on Bonnie Raitt's Nick of Time, Love Letter is one of my favorite Bonnie Raitt songs. 
does this happen how i mean how does this person who just put out an album that she herself doesn't even like get considered for songs in the bonnie Raitt realm i don't even i'm trying to find a connection you mentioned once again once again this is a very similar thing and this is what the other young people you know are always like well how did you do that did you send it around no, I had a, I always I've had a publishing deal since I was 23. I always have a publishing deal because I'm a good songwriter and everybody yeah. it, you know. So I had a pub deal with at the time Huey and Bob had started a publishing company called Bobaloo. So I had a publishing deal with them. Bob, who is still a dear friend of mine and I love him and I trust him. He, um, I had turned in the songs and got uh, some kind of, you know, as always, missing the point feedback, not from yeah. Bob, but from other people. Like, ooh, you can't start a song with shut up and whatever, you know. And I, I was starting to get a little sick of getting like constantly told that I couldn't do, you know, follow my instincts. But anyway, so the, the he, but he had this, the cassette and she, I had been writing with this guy, Andre Pesis, who um, uh, he would write the lyrics and I would write most of the time, would write the music. And we, we wrote a bunch of songs together for Babaloo. Babalu, and she had, they, had, they were pitching them to Bonnie. So she, when she was hanging out with Bob, she said, hey, um, do you have any songs by that girl? She didn't like, we wrote the song called Chemistry that she loved the music for, but didn't like the words. Mm. Um, and she said, do you have any more songs by that girl. And I had just turned in these three songs and he, they were like in a cassette on the floor of his <laughs> car. Right. And he gave them to her and she like flipped out. Wow. Um, and at the time, you know, it was really interesting because in the, in light of the share thing, I was, you know, she came in then and asked me, cause it's up to the songwriter. The first use of the song is up to the songwriter. You can't mm -hmm. just, record it you need permission and she came and asked me and I was like oh I'm just about to make another record I was kind of hoping to put these on my record and then I remembered mm. that I had missed a you know a 10 million selling album because I thought my record would sell more than that I can't imagine why <laughs> make one of the worst records you know th that I can imagine making and so I was like okay I'm gonna go with this you know uh -huh, uh -huh. You know, she was newly sober. She was sort of, she got signed to Capitol, but she was, it was sort of a throwaway deal. It was, you know, they did, nobody thought that that was going to happen with Bonnie. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, it was kind of one of those things where you're like, well, I don't know if this is, I mean, if, is this like, I'm just giving up these songs that I love. Right. And yeah, yet, no one knew. I came from, you know, and, and that's kind of the, the kind of music. I mean, literally I played so much R&B and, you know, 
fusion and like, I, I don't know, I just come from that more sophisticated background. I was writing a little bit more down that alley at that point. And that was, I think, one of the reasons that the Bonnie cuts made sense. It, it, it's not too dissimilar from what happened with Tina Turner a couple years earlier with that private dancer album. Back. Here's a, a, a known talent. Everybody loves her and, and wants this person to succeed, but she's not. And so how do we get the right team of people, the right songs, the right product behind her to buoy her back up into where we feel like she should be? And yeah. it happened for Tina, and then it happens a few years later for Bonnie, and you get to be a part of that success. Now, how did your – you mentioned the having the B-side of Turn Back Time. You know, Bonnie's album sold like six million copies. Are you – we try to touch on some, you know, sensitively a little bit, the business side of all of this. Were you getting some nice mailbox money checks yeah, around that time? Yeah, I had time? already earned out my pub deal. So I was, and I was 100% writer on both of those songs. And, it, you know, by the way, at the time, I mean, I was making all my own demos from the very beginning. And the, and the, the recordings were like basically note for note my demos, you know, which was- Really? Like, so Have a Heart was going to be a reggae song for you too? written my you know basically what happened was Huey uh, w you know was making a record called Small World that they they yep. said we're looking for kind of a reggae song so I was like sure I'll write a, song, a reggae song so I I called my brother Kevin and said hey can you come over and program a reggae beat for me and he did for pro four bar loop mm -hmm. which is and then I just sat down and wrote that damn song and mm -hmm. again I was kind of going I was like, oh, I want to try to write a song. I was really into the flat six, flat seven chord progression, which I used to get into and out of the sections in that song. Mm -hmm. And um, and I was also, I was just like kind of playing with the idea of not going to the one chord until you get to the first bar of the chorus, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, these were like sort of, I mean, and it was interesting because I was trying to write the song for Huey, but where I went astray is that he wanted... He liked those kind of jokey, fun lyrics. Uh, and I was breaking up my boyfriend at the time, the guitar player in the, the Wild Combo was addicted to meth. And, oh, no. and I, we were breaking up, the band was falling apart. And I 
you know, it just came pouring out. And I knew that Huey was never going to cut that song Mm -hmm. with those types of lyrics. So lucky for me, Bonnie was right there. She was right there in that, that pain, that heartbreak pain. Yeah. And, and really also is such a sophisticated musician with great ears and chops and really got that music, you know, she got it. Wow. And then um, you show up again on the follow-up, Luck of the Draw with Slow Ride. Sort of was it sort of a thing where we thought, well, let's not fool with this, with whatever we did to make Bonnie successful. Let's do it again. Let's get some of the same songwriters, some of the same people, and have it happen again. Was that you know, the thinking? I never, I never really wrote for. I I don't find it's helpful to write for projects. Like ah, I never did that. I didn't. I always wrote for myself. Slow Ride was actually what I wrote it with Andre Pesses. And then Larry, so she, she again, liked the song, liked the music, didn't like the lyrics. Mm. And again, and then she, <laughs> this is a classic Bonnie, she asked Larry to, um, to rewrite the lyrics. So he ended up getting on it as well. And, mm. but again, like that was just, I just love that musical idea. Um, and then I, I was like, well, this will work for Bonnie and got a slide player to come and play on it. Mm. So that was basically, I didn't, I don't really, I mean, I, obviously I wanted to get on records at that point. Cause my, my recording career was kind of over in terms of, you know, being able to go out there and get a record deal. So yeah. I was really focusing on, on the publishing and, uh, writing for other artists at that okay. point. Well, then that becomes very successful for you, too. I, I don't know that I realized until getting ready to talk to you. Did you, ha- you co-wrote Adam Ant's Wonderful? Yeah. I'll tell you how much I miss Your sweet kiss Did I tell you I didn't cry Well, I lied La 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 Over, real over When I nearly hit the face I love So tired of packaging the anger Always pushing you away Did I tell you the wonderful? I miss you Yes I do 
That's one of my favorite songs of all time. That's I have put that song back in college. I put that on more <laughs> mixtapes to the girls that I was into than I can even count. How did this happen? I love Adamant. So that was actually um, before the Bonnie thing happened. I was um, when, before I signed with Babalu. Oh no, this that's this is wrong. Yeah, what happened was Babalu. I loved Babalu. They got me a bunch of great cuts. And um, I had some Robert Cray cuts when I was with them. And then they couldn't afford to pick up my contract. They had a business thing that happened that sort of screwed them up. And they couldn't give me the advance. So I was playing the field. And one of the people that I was playing the field with as a songwriter was Miles Copeland, who... Um, had the publishing company. He was basically uh, Stuart Copeland's brother, really well known in the industry. Signed like all these. He had they had a record label and a publishing company, and he put me in the room. His I forget his Adam's real name, but um, Stuart uh, Goddard. Or? And he's adorable. Adore. Is so he? sweet and nice um but uh, it was weird because he had already written the song and i was miles was putting me in on songs that he thought should be better mm. to fix to make them more catchy right mm -hmm. because i was obviously good at writing catchy songs so i went in i don't think they told marco who was who was stewart's co-writer on the original song which mm -hmm. i think you know, I didn't know, but I feel I'm Marco. If you're out there, I'm sorry because that was not cool. Um, but I did. Um, I kind of dolled it up. You know, I, I put the chorus together in a different way and um, shortened the verses. You know, this like the it's like mm -hmm. sort of just fixing. And wow. I wrote that middle part that da -da 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 you did, yeah. Oh. Um, which, which kind of just busted the song into this other, like, sort of super uh, sexy level, right, that it didn't have before. It was kind of, it was kind of simpy, but uh, when it went into that part, it really, like, exploded, and I think it really made the song work better. Absolutely. I've had, uh, Marco's been on this show here a couple of times, and uh, I love him, and I love that song, and I didn't realize that you were involved, but that makes sense. And you mentioning Miles Copeland, I wanted to ask you about that, because... If I, of course, this is on Wikipedia, and who knows if that's ever right, but it says that you recorded an album for his Muscle Records that got shelved. And I was thinking, I always think of Miles Copeland and IRS Records. And I mean, so, Miles is one of the most important figure. He's like the Amit Erdogan of alternative rock, American alternative rock of the 80s. And I right. thought you two make a perfect pairing. And Why we, did you and record an album that got shelved? We got along so well. And he he really, but by the time we sort of met up, it was like 89, I think. So it was, it was kind of, he was sort of not doing as much label stuff and was super focused on publishing. He he did get me a, in, a, in a bunch of situations where I wrote with people, but... Um, he was famous. He's he's had he has a not the best reputation. Um, like as an example, 
for many, many years. Of course, I could say this about Warner Brothers, too, who inherited the Slash record. I didn't get any uh, accounting from oh. any record company, any major company. And the publishers do the accounting, but Miles didn't do any accounting with hardly any of his writers. You would literally have to go in and, like, you know, get lawyers and stuff. Um, he He's not the most forthcoming um, person, uh, mm. business-wise. Um, okay. Yeah, so anyway, the weird thing that happened with, with that record was that there were, again, people in San Francisco who were like, you should make a great record. We want you to make this record. They got, uh, um, so Miles agreed to give them the money to pay for the record. And it was this woman, Ann Fry and Ken Kessie. And they, they started a company called Muscle. And we made the record. And it's such a cool record. It's it's it still suffers from some of the same problems that the other one did, but the, the music is so freaking ragingly good. good. And um, I have Dennis Chambers playing on it. I mean, it's crazy. But Miles, with you know, they got to the end. They're like, okay, we made the record. We need the money. And Miles just said no. And you know, years later, I went back. I went back to. Um, I forget the name of his sort of right-hand man, this guy that works for him. And I I tried to buy the the masters and they were like, we don't know anything about this. We don't know anything about it. They refused to even acknowledge. Really? So, yeah. So again, <laughs> once again, I will I will say, you know, the fucking yeah. that 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 artists endure at the hands of these freaking people is just, you know, it's it's unbelievable, honestly. Wow. But I do still have, it's funny, because I've been talking to this company. I did um, file this wonderful pro bono lawyer who, who filed for reversion of my publishing and the rights to my master's, my master of good, clean fun, which reverts next Thursday mm. back to me. And um, I'm going to re-release Good Clean Fun on this nice. little label. And I think I'm going to release the Muscle Records. Since Miles insists that he doesn't have anything to do with it, I think I'm safe. <laughs> well, then take him at his word and do what you want with it, right? <laughs> I thought you said it wasn't yours. <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, good. Okay. I would love to hear that. Yeah. Um, Especially if you're happy with it. I mean, the the self-titled album is can it's it's a cautionary tale. But if you're happy with the muscle record, then I want to hear that. It's not as as muscular as I like mm -hmm. my records to be, but uh -huh. um, but it um, it has some amazing songs and amazing. And there's a couple songs on it that I I wouldn't um, I wouldn't include at okay. this. Yeah, in okay. retrospect, but. We, you know, it's the same thing. You're making a record. You're blind. You have no idea, like, what the market is like. You're just, like, doing the best you can. Yeah. And there are two that I just probably don't think okay. are that strong. Oh, but, I'm excited to hear this. Hopefully it comes out. Okay. I'll, I'll share the, the stuff with you and you can Good. I'd love it. Um, I wanted to ask you about the song you did on the David Crosby album, Coverage. The TV is talking to me. Identification, but maybe I'm mistaken. I talk to my radio, I keep it doing, doing all that show. I get my last dime, 
and the reason is, and, and I've never, I, I'm, I'm not an expert on David's solo output, so I didn't even know much about this song. But when in getting ready to talk to you, I'm looking at the Thousand Roads album, and it's full of, and I'm wondering if the same, the people who made that album went in thinking, let's do for David what we did for Bonnie, because every, Bonnie Raitt, I should say, because every song on there is written from by some other luminary. There's Stephen Bishop on there. There's all these other people. Was that what was happening? Was that the story behind A Thousand Roads? Like, we want you to come in and sort of, we want to use one of your songs to do for Cross what we just did for Bonnie Raitt. That was, again, so like all, every time this happens, it's usually through somebody who is a friend. I mean, this is another thing. It's like, never is it cold call, you know? Right. So what happened was, um, I have a friend, early, early fan and supporter of mine, this guy named Stephen Barncard, who is a producer and music nut and a great, great guy. And he was good friends with Cross and that coverage was on good clean fun so um they you know oh, sure oh yeah, yeah. it was uh. kind of just under under emphasized you know um uh-huh. so and i think actually it's one of my best songs you know it's a good one he Dave, david wanted to do it and i okay. i don't i didn't really know anything else about in terms of what the strategy was from the record company i'm, I'm sure that that had something to do with it, but I don't think they picked my song because I had been on Bonnie Wright's record. Oh, oh I think okay. that was more just because Barncard sent him the song. And David is a true, another, you know, for whatever he went through with his drug addiction and, and his problems, he's a wild guy, you know, he's a mm-hmm. wild boy. He's completely just, you know, always just on the edge of the wave, right? And he mm-hmm. um, is a music fiend. And he he loved that song, and it was so funny because I went and cut the the record with um, with Russ um, Kunkel Kunkel and Lee Sklar, and yeah, and um, those guys like were like, "What in the fuck are you doing with this song? Why can we?" Russ kept going, "Can't you just make all the bars the same length?" Like. <laughs> Cross is like no (laughs) it has to be the way it was on the record so you know I have to give it to those guys I mean I what I got was that it was just about the song and that Crosby loved the song okay okay oh that's classic yeah I was just curious if they because John Hyatt writes a song on that album and Phil Collins is on there and Joni Mitchell and Jimmy Webb and I thought maybe they were trying to do for Cross what they did for Bonnie uh they were I didn't I just didn't I don't hear end of it like as a songwriter mm-hmm. i don't that's not right talk to me about that right right <laughs> um okay i have to know did you you played you went on tour with billy idol as yeah. his keyboardist for a couple of years yeah i was the keyboardist and le- leader of the vocal section so <laughs> and this is around the time of rock the cradle of love now i from my understanding, you don't play on the Charmed Life album, but when he went out on tour, you're there with him. That's one of those things where I auditioned. So I had, I mean, basically, the I'm a really good keyboard player, and uh-huh. I also really good at technology. So at the time, it was really hard to find 
players, women especially, and I'm going to say I probably got that gig because I'm a woman, that really could handle the technology. You know, I had, you know, a rack with like six different rack-mounted keyboard modules with, you know, that I, I switched using this LX9. You know, you would switch through these patches that were like stacks. I mean, it was very sophisticated. Uh-huh. Um, at the time, technologically. So I was good at that stuff, and I also was a really good player. And I just went in on a cold audition mm. um, and got the gig. Yeah, I. you know what it was, though? I think Susie Davis, who had been in his band before, mm-hmm. um, she may have recommended me now that I Oh, do you know her? Yeah, very okay. good. Very good friends. And she's amazing. She's a great singer, great player, played like accordion, you know, with that band. Yeah. I mean, she's a very, um, just, you know, she's, and she played with Mick Jagger's band. What happened was when I went on the road with Belinda Carlisle, she had to lead that band to join Mick Jagger's band. And that was my first sort of like touring. I had the early one, but this was the first like sort of big time tour. That I got on. Huh. Sue, now, I hope this isn't... Susie's... Didn't he get in trouble for, like, sexual harassment of one of his female keyboard players in the 80s? Or, do you know what I'm talking about? I don't. I mean, I basically... Or he, impre- he got her pregnant or something I, like that? <laughs> After I left... Well, I got pregnant and left the Not band. by Billy Idol. Uh, not by Billy <laughs> Okay. Good. There was that was a situation where I was old enough at that point to say, you know, they would do that shit to me that they do to women that that used to freak me out and make me like run away. And I'd be like, fuck, you get your hands off me, you right, idiot. Right. You know, and so I had gotten to the point where you just couldn't. You just couldn't. I don't know. I just wouldn't give it, you know, you know. Right. There's, it doesn't take much to withstand that stuff unless, but the big problem was if you're hired in a band and somebody starts really stalking you and wanting to screw you, um, and then you can't say no, you know, because you'll get fired. Right, you're right. no fun. You're a bitch. All of a sudden you're getting fired. So for me, what they were doing to me was different, I think, than, you know, but also they would try, they would put the try on it and I'd just mm. be like, nah, I'm not, I'm not into it. Thanks though. And wow. stayed, stayed away from it. I think younger women often feel like they have to, to do it, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, in order to keep their job. It's their first chance. You know, they're on their first big tour. I mean, think about it. You know, it's like, you really don't want to lose that opportunity. No. And Billy strikes me as kind of an animal, you know, uh, a party animal, a sexual animal, a whatever. I mean, he just seems so raw and unhinged. I mean, he the guy's been a rock star since he was like 20, you know. Yeah. And so that those people who have been rock stars their whole life, they're they're um, insulated from yeah. the results of their behavior. And he he actually I'm just going to say Billy was an angel to me. I mean, yeah, they would get drunk and like, try to like, you know, come in the back, you know, Mm. we'd be on the bus and they'd be, you know, putting shit in my bunk and trying to climb in with me and that kind of stuff. But it was basically 
you know, you all he had to do was just go get them, you know, stop mm-hmm. it, and they'd stop it. And he was pretty easy, uh, you know, that he would try it, give it a try, and then you'd just tell him to fuck off and he'd go away. And so I feel like that's my my interaction with him because I was old enough, I was in my late 30s at that point, and I just didn't, I just didn't, wasn't gonna play that game, I didn't need it that bad, yeah, you know? yeah. Did you? I hope this isn't too personal. You mentioned getting pregnant around that time. Were you married or in another relationship or just decided now's the time to have a kid or what? I was married. Um, I mean, I was living in LA. I had just been on the road with Billy. Like we were out for, I mean, off, off and on. I, we went to Europe twice and we did mm. the whole country. Mm. Um, we went to South America, you know, we were really, really touring and it was a long, long time. So in that break, I came home and, you know, was basically, I had made so much money between the tour and the Bonnie Raitt thing. I was kind of just relaxing, you know, and um, just hanging out with my husband who we had a very difficult marriage. Mm. Um, but one new, on New Year's Eve, we, you know, mm-hmm. had a good time and we uh, made a baby. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it was a, it was an accident, but at the point I was like, well, this is probably my last chance to have a baby. Mm-hmm. I was feeling somewhat at loose ends, like I I knew I wasn't going to have a, you know, I mean I I was I could write, and I was I had just signed to Sony, um, so I had a big new publishing deal, but I was feeling pretty disconnected from the world of for you know obvious reasons from the mm-hmm. music industry and the music industry i don't know if it's better now but at the time it just sucked you know yeah. Yeah. really sucked it was like all these awful dudes you know mm-hmm. um, a lot of lawyers who you know at the beginning it used to be like p- real music guys and suddenly it's all these freaking lawyer guys mm-hmm. and these companies are making decisions based on money only it it just changed the whole thing was such a drag and every interaction was such a drag that i was really kind of like over it you know mm-hmm. um and so getting pregnant was perfect because yeah. it just gave me something to love something that i could love as much as i love music yeah um, huh okay uh, you you mentioned belinda and i wanted to ask you about that too i think belinda came first right you went yeah. out on tour with her yeah. was and and I want to hear all about it, but, and I know you got to go. I'm, I'm going to, I'll try and. Well, keep... I, uh, we, she pushed to seven, so we're all right. Okay. Okay, good. Um, when you went, took on that role, kind of backing up Belinda, as great a gig as that might've been, was there any part of you that felt, you know, like taking a step backwards, you had been your own solo, uh, thing for so long, trying to make your own career, happen and then you take a back seat to supporting someone else was it difficult to do that it you know look man i i do this because i love music right mm-hmm. like i don't do it to be a star to be the set i never gave a shit about that you know Good. i liked being my own boss because i could you know i could hire the people i wanted to hire and have music pl- played my way but you know for me as long as you're paying me to play music i'm down you know, mm-hmm. and even if you're not half the time, you know, I, I like music. I like playing gigs. I like playing all different kinds of music. That tour was rough for other reasons. There was, I mean, mm-hmm. as you can imagine, you go out, I came in in the middle. 
there were a, um, a lot of alliances that had already been made. Um, there were people having relationships with each other mm -hmm. that, you know, and it was, there was just a lot of, you know, a lot of monkey business. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. so I was just, you know, I was just out there trying to have a good time. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's, uh, what's Belinda like to work for? I'll just say that she stayed in a different hotel than we did. Ah, okay. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Okay. All right. Um, let me ask you about one other one, one other collaboration I believe you did. Did you play on the Robin Zander solo album? Oh my God. I can't believe you dug that up. That's yes. How yes. did that happen? Oh God. I don't even know. And I basically screwed the pooch on that session. Like I went in and Jimmy, I mean, was producing it and he wanted it to be like, da -da 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 -da. like he wanted one of those, those pulsing synth wow. things. And they had a keyboard there for me that I had never worked with. And, and there was, it was pre MIDI like sequencing. So I had to do it in the keyboard and I didn't know how the keyboard worked and they didn't have a manual and there was no such thing as the internet. And it was like, but anyway, I did. Yeah. I played on the, on the session. I can barely remember the session because I was so freaked out that I couldn't do what Jimmy Iovine was asking me to do, that I was like, I just was like in a state of panic the whole time. You know, because it's, you go in to do a session like that, you're getting paid, you know, scale, you know, and you gotta deliver. You can't freaking not know how to do something, you know? And um, I just, I don't know, I just fucked up. I didn't get the right keyboard, you know? And uh, it was, um, it was really embarrassing. I think but you stuck but I got, around and played on the whole album. So yeah, you're you played for on the you recorded the whole album with them though, right? No, no, no. I oh, only, you did. I only did a couple of songs. Oh, okay. Do you remember which ones? No. I don't okay. Huh. I was going to play a little bit of one. I have of them. never listened to that record. Like I have no recollection. Okay. Okay. Of record at all. So just to give you an idea. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> mean that that it's not memorable i mean i have brain yeah. damage right <laughs> too traumatic let's put it way far back <laughs> all, right. Okay. all right um well quickly i want to touch on at least your your other two solo albums empty sky and love among the ruins i ruins especially you know as i mentioned this diversity in your sound you kind of are you're your own bonnie Raitt these days i mean that album is very americana sort of comes from the same sort of rootsy, rocky, bluesy area that she's coming from. Robin's egg blue, three on the tree. We 
Is that what's, is that your thing now? I mean, was where are you? What happened was I started playing guitar. Oh, yeah. So again, I just want to emphasize that what, all the changes that you're referring to came because I was learning something new. Oh. I would be learning something and I would write a bunch of songs to explore it. So it wasn't like, oh, now I'm going to be an Americana artist, you know. <laughs> it was like guitar makes your songs different. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was um, super into, uh, I, I, you know, I started taking guitar lessons and I fell in love with a guitar player and we play guitar all the time. And I was really, really into playing the guitar. I didn't want to play keyboards. And that was how I wrote that record. I fell in love and was exploring what, what kinds of changes and what kinds of rhythms and grooves happen when you're playing guitar. And the other thing that happened there is that there's that's that record is about aging. Uh, and it's about, it's about finding meaning, you know, in when you think everything's gone, it can, you can still resurrect meaning out of it. Yeah. And if you listen to the words, so I was also just sort of expiating this, this passage, you know, into a part of your life where, you know, you're not young anymore. I was in my forties mm -hmm. and you know, it, it's a, it's a real time for women. There's a real time of reckoning, you know, of kind of facing, you know, your loss of, of, you can't just crook your finger and have anybody do what you want them to do anymore. And, you know, having had a child, I mean, it was just a bunch of stuff. So that record was really informed by those kinds of life changes and my total passion for, you know, telecasters, right? Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I think that kind of leads us to where you are today. I mean, you, uh, you explained to me, I mean, you work for the Berkeley College of Music, which it doesn't get much more prestigious than that. What... What is Body Hayes doing today? So I, I run the songwriting department at Berkeley. Um, while I was um, living in the Bay Area and getting really into guitar um, and raising my daughter, I also started devising youth programs for a nonprofit in San Francisco called um, Blue Bear and um, essentially got really good at making programming to teach mm. young people how to not only play music in groups, but also how to write songs. It's interesting because a bunch of those kids who were in my songwriting programs now have come to Berkeley and, you know, most of them are really good because when you start writing songs when you're nine or 10, by the time you're 18, you're a freaking monster, mm. you know? Mm. So I, um, I use that. I mean, basically, my daughter uh, graduated from high school and went to school at BU in Boston. And I was like, okay, this part's over. Um, I'm going to go do something else. And I applied as a teacher to Berkeley. Um, the position was closed without filling it. I don't really mm. remember what the deal was with that. And then the chair job opened up and I applied and got the job. Wow. So, um, I, I think probably 90% because of the Bonnie Ray cuts, you know, mm -hmm. um, more than, you know, I don't have a college degree. So mm. it, it, it had a lot to do with my success. Um, and at the time, the songwriting department was super academic. So having a person who had had real 
success as a songwriter, I think, was a was a change mm. um, for the of direction for the college. Okay, um, and so, so it's, it's been really fun. I love Berkeley. I love working there. Um, the students are phenomenal. They just get better and better every year. And uh, yeah, it's really great. Okay. I mean, are you teaching classes? Are you grading papers? Are you, you have <laughs> office hours? I mean, what, you know. I do papers in the songwriting department. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm just imagining what, you know, what college over yeah, there must be like. Papers. Um, okay. So it's all writing. I mean, it's basically just writing, 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 writing. I, um, I mostly am, I, I oversee about 24 teachers. Um you know, manage and evaluate them. And I have a, also a staff and a bunch of student employees. I'm responsible for the development of the curriculum, um, which I think I've met that challenge pretty, pretty well. And I also uh, am responsible for the recruitment programs that pertain to songwriting, which include, like I just was in Rome for a week after doing, um, you know, programs on the road, uh, for students in other countries and stuff. So I, I basically get to do a lot of, it's mostly administrative work. I am teaching about seven credits, which is two classes and a bunch of private lessons. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of a good balance. I teach, I wrote an online class. I teach online. I just, it's kind of a nice way to round it up, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And um, what about you personally? I mean, are you married? I, any Anything like, you just have the one daughter? I just have the one daughter. One was enough. Yeah, okay. She's, uh, she's uh, working as a producer in oh. Los Angeles. She's the assistant for a really successful um, writer-producer in uh, The Sync, so TV and movies. Hmm. I'm, uh, I'm not married. I'm, I've been, you know, I've been here for seven years and my job is, I don't even know if I can describe to you how all consuming it certainly was for the first like four years. It was just a, an incredible, fierce learning curve. So um, I really didn't have the time. Like I, I kept trying to date and it would be like, I would annoy everybody so much because I'd be like, I can't see you for like three weeks. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that, that just doesn't play, you know, it's like, you're not serious. Right. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I think I just wasn't, I'm just not that serious. I'm not like the person who gets in relationships to be in a relationship. You know, I always just would fall in love with somebody because th their mind was amazing, you know, mm -hmm. and, or they're, they're, they're a great musician. One of those, mm -hmm. that would be such a, it, it wasn't like dating. I didn't, right. date. I would just like fall completely into another world with somebody. And that's like how I kind of prefer things to go. Okay. Well, um, I have, like I said, I've been wanting to talk to you for four and a half years now, and I'm so glad we finally did it. I, I knew that, you would have a fascinating story and I'm so thankful that you shared it with me. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you for asking me to talk with you. I really had fun. Sure. Talk Let me ask you one last yeah. question. One last, what'd you say? I love talking about myself. Well, good. I love hearing it. Let me, <laughs> let me close out with one last question then. When you look back over this crazy career of yours, what is one of the highlights? What's your favorite story? I don't know if it's something you share with your students 
or your friends, or even just in the back of your mind, when you just think, you guys would never guess what happened to me, or what I saw, or what I did, or what I experienced. Is there something that leaps to mind? I mean, probably the first tour that I went on with with the band, with the Wild Combo, we did a national tour, van tour, hmm. um, with my friend Jerry Hess, who, who's passed away, as our as our road manager and my friend Van Bailey is our crew, and we had so much fun. Mm-hmm. It was terrible. It was so exhausting and so depleting. But it was the most fun. I I don't know. I think it was the most fun I've ever had. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is Bonnie Raitt, mm-hmm. basically like coming to the Sportsman Lodge and basically begging me. to let me to let her record those songs and i remember just going wow this is like this person is like the queen of the universe and i mean as far as being beloved you know there was very few people that had that kind of awe and respect throughout the music industry and so right you know i i felt like this is when you know that you have something when Mm -hmm. somebody like that treats you like that you know yeah it validates that yeah. hunch you've had about yourself. Yeah, for so like, long, like it you know? wasn't. I wasn't. It wasn't just my story about myself. Like I actually did do have talent, right? Mm-hmm. And that was when it really came home to me that it wasn't just people looking to make money from me. This woman was an artist. She's a musician. She's looking at me and going, "I want." And you know, she sounds like me on yeah. art. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. and so I, I just felt like, wow, that's. That to me is a real acknowledgement that I wasn't sure that I had had up until then. Good. Well, you deserve it. Thank you, Bonnie. There you have it, Bonnie Hayes. Isn't she the best? I love people like Bonnie who just tell it like it is. They own it. They own their own mistakes. They allude to the mistakes of others. They call people out for their garbage. I love it. I love people like Bonnie. Thank you so much, Bonnie, for talking with me. That was fantastic. Now, I wanted to close it out. I, well, truly, I wanted to close it out with one of her latter-day songs from those Americana albums that are so good. Look them up on Spotify or whatever. Um, but she mentioned in this conversation that song Rochambeau that was like a B-side crowd favorite early on from the Wild Combo. I thought since she mentioned it, we should probably play it here so people get some context. Great tune. She can do no wrong. Now... Guys, we follow up this fantastic conversation with an excellent female singer-songwriter. Next week, we're talking to another female singer-songwriter. It is the great Holly Knight. Holly Knight is our guest next week, and you will not believe this conversation. I am so proud of the things that we've been able to accomplish lately with people like Bonnie and Chris and Holly and Charlie and everybody else. We are so lucky. Uh, Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man, Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do. Guys, I know we bombarded you last week with bonus material. There was the Neil Peart tribute. There was our year-end recap. There were two bonus episodes. We don't always do that. When you're listening to this right now, I am actually on vacation in Hawaii with my family, and I wanted to clear the decks before I left, get everything that we had out there out so that everyone can enjoy it, and we don't really have any bonus material coming up for at least a couple of weeks. So hope you guys are still chewing on those things and enjoy them. Let us know. One of them was with Suburban Underground. We played some obscure R&B. Another one was our top 10 Yacht Rock songs with Noel from Reliving My Youth. 
Give us feedback. Let us know what you thought about all that stuff, okay? And you know how to find us on Facebook by now. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. We still are doing the daily polls. They're a blast. Who do you like better, this band or this band? Uh, everyone seems to be engaged with that. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We'll be back next Tuesday with the fantastic Holly Knight. Thanks, everybody. We love you.